Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the balance billing podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on January 27th, 2017. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined as always by my co-host, who will soon be available for purchase across state lines. <laughs> Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. And this week, we welcome Rebecca Dresser, a professor of law at Washington University. She's one of the country's leading experts in biomedical ethics. She's a past member of the President's Council on Bioethics and National Institutes of Health Recombinant DNA Advisory Board. She's written extensively in her field, producing a simply illustrious collection of case books, monographs, and journal articles. It's a great privilege to have you on the pod, Rebecca. Well, thank you so much. I'm happy to be with you. Well, this this new book of yours, uh, Silent Partners, Human Subjects, and Research Ethics. It's a tour de force. Uh, I warmly recommend it to the listeners. As you note early in the book, today one can find thousands of publications about human research ethics and regulation, as well as hundreds of government and professional reports on human subject issues. However, in today's ethics and oversight system, decisions are made primarily by people who have never been research subjects. So as you say, your book seeks to remedy that imbalance. So I wonder if you could just sort of briefly let us in on sort of the inspiration for the book. And given that you're dealing with real people and not professional reports and so on, how did you set about the task of gathering the material in order to write the book? Just about 11 years ago, I was uh, diagnosed with cancer and it was advanced and serious. The whole experience was very educational, though. Um, As someone who taught and written about medical ethics and policy and uh, bioethics for years and years, I learned so much from the experience of being a a patient with a serious illness. So that, for example, when I found out my diagnosis, there was almost, it was almost as if a little elf was sitting on my shoulder thinking, oh, this is breaking bad news. And breaking bad news is something I had taught for many years in my um, teaching at the medical school. So just that uh, awakening um, gave me a new perspective on my work. The first scholarship I did in reaction to this was to gather some other people from bioethics who had either had cancer or had a spouse with it, cared for them. And uh, we were able to get a grant to meet and talk about we learned from it. And through this, we put together a book called Malignant Medical Ethicists Confront Cancer, and that came out in 2012. One experience I had as a patient uh, occurred when I was uh, meeting with my oncologist and going through uh, different options for treatment. The tumor board, which is a group of cancer experts, had met and talked about my case and made a recommendation for treatment. After he described that to me, he then said, oh, and you have another option. You could uh, participate in a clinical trial. So then he gave me briefly uh, what that would involve. The available interventions being treated, tested in the trial were not as intensive as the recommendation uh, they had, the tumor board had made for me as an individual. Also, I said to him, well, if I went into the trial, I would probably have to wait longer to start any treatment, right? Because then I'd have to go through the um, bureaucratic step 
chance of entering into the trial be randomized and so forth? And he said, yes, probably it would take longer. I was very desperate to start treatment, so I decided not to participate in the trial. And so this experience gave me a sense of what it's like to be a patient facing a life-threatening illness, thinking about whether to be in a study. Well, talking of... uh uh, literature. I assume that uh, your book title starting with Silent is not an accidental similarity with Jay Katz's Silent World of Doctor and Patient. Over the years, I guess some would argue that informed consent in clinical care has become more administrative, more sort of checklists rather than uh, dealing with the true sort of bioethical um, human underpinnings of the concept. Do you think that's true for human subjects research today? Is is that, is that what's happened to sort of, you know, the core idea of the research subject's best interest rule? The way I came to the title was more through the partner part. There is a sort of a slogan in modern research, participant or subject is the partner in research. So it's a move to try to suggest there's some sort of egalitarian position here between researchers and the people who are their subjects or the people who participate. The word participant is also part of this movement to make subjects more on an an equal par with other people involved in research. When I thought, you know, heard and, and saw that word so often, to me that would suggest that subjects should have an active role in decisions about research, not simply whether or not someone as an individual goes into a trial, but also about how research is done, you know, when a study is planned. Well, let's talk to some people who have been in research in terms of finding out, well, is this procedure burdensome and was it easy for you? Was there information that you would have liked to have known about it that we could have told you ahead of time that would have helped with your decision? So involvement at that level and also involvement in ethics. So people who have been research subjects ought to be on IRBs, the committees that review proposed studies in institutions. They should be on advisory groups that are coming up with uh, policies, recommendations on specific kinds of research or issues in research like how much should people be paid to be in studies. So the primary argument of the book is that here we have a group of people who, through personal experience, have a sort of knowledge about the topic of human research that other people don't have. The experts, the community members who might be involved but have never been in a study. Uh, And why don't we have them as part of the process? I think we should, and the book is my case for doing so. I just want to take one step back and talk a little bit about the theoretical form foundations. And I think later I'm going to ask about the literary foundations of this sort of approach. But you noted in the introduction to your book the movements for deliberative democracy, like Iris Marion Young's work, 
Jane Mansbridge's work. The feminist epistemology of the situated knower, this idea that under feminist epistemology, you know, your knowledge is situated, there really is no view from nowhere. And the perspective of narrative medicine, that all of these are sources of support for subject inclusion. And I've been seeing that trend, like in the Health Affairs Narrative Matters podcast and some of their Narrative Matters pieces in Health Affairs. I was wondering if you could uh, discuss a bit the, these theoretical foundations and how they've been working into the, your approach, the bioethics literature, other relevant areas. There has been this emerging recognition that personal experience is a form of knowledge that should be recognized and people with that knowledge should be included in decisions. And that just to acknowledge that one's views, views on ethics as well as one's views of the world are influenced by the experiences that you've had. So nobody is purely objective. I think it's interesting that in bioethics, we haven't been as tuned into this point as other fields, I think the identity of a bioethicist tends to be someone who's, oh, I'm very patient-oriented or I'm very subject-oriented and I care about people and the system and so forth, but I know what's best. The expert knowledge is what we need. And, you know, you get a similar attitude from the physicians and the scientists and so forth. I probably didn't think much about this myself until I became a patient. Um, and I realized we have a big blind spot in our, in our work. Now, there are cases where advisory groups and, and, and IOBs, you know, they'll say, well, we need people from outside the system, somebody who is a community representative. But I'm, I'm trying to go beneath that and say, what about somebody who actually is sort of an expert in the personal experience of research? The community representatives who are often involved in this may, they're good citizens. They might not know anything about the topic. Or, for example, on IOBs I've been involved with, um, there are often people who once worked in the health field or and then retired or they worked for a, a non-profit. They're coming in with a, a sort of a worldview, but if we're really interested in finding out, well, does this study present unreasonable burdens to subjects? Shouldn't we ask some subjects who have been yes. exposed to something similar and, and see what they think? I had a wonderful example and I was uh, giving a talk on this and a man in the audience whose uh, wife had um, developed dementia at a very early age and he was very committed to dementia research and trying to help with that. Uh, so he volunteered for a metabolic study where he had to be in the hospital overnight and have all of his bodily fluids collected. And beforehand they said to him, and we're going to pay you, I think it was something like $300 to do this. And he said, oh, I don't care about the money. I'm doing this because I want to help research. And then he said, after he did it, no amount of money would ever persuade me to go through that again. Oh, wow. <laughs> Goodness. So he learned a lot from that experience um, that it, it was a lot harder than he expected. You know, maybe having an opportunity to talk to somebody 
about who had been in a similar study, that would have been a good way to inform him. Uh, maybe people would still say yes, but they would be better prepared. This is the kind of information I think can be useful to prospective subjects as well as to research teams who are designing a study and want to think about what are they asking subjects to do, how can we minimize the burden, how can we give subjects a good picture of what's ahead. Uh, another thing this could help with is people who drop out of studies. There's a big problem with that. Maybe if more people knew up front from experienced subjects what to uh, expect, they would be more likely to stay in to the bitter end. In uh, Chapter 3, you quote from Larry Churchill and his co-authors who criticize uh, medical ethics codes as sort of based in, in narcissism, which I, I thought was, was uh, very pithy. And and that chapter moves on to actually try and figure out what it is that patients are, both what their expectations are going into trials, but also what are some of the difficulties that they experience that perhaps those narcissistic uh, researchers and their regulators don't. So things like uh, how study requirements can actually be extremely burdensome, how research subjects have to confront the medical and certainty that we talk about so often in the classroom, and also the disillusionment that trial participants can feel as they progress. How did you put this puzzle together? What are the, the pieces that, that you really sort of drew out of, of some of those observations? One reason I wanted to write about that was to make more vivid what people go through. And um, in that chapter, I have separate uh, discussions of so-called healthy or normal volunteers and then people who are patients who participate in trials. Um, I think one of the most dramatic situations is um, the, the patients who have a life-threatening disease or the, the parents of children in that situation. This is, first of all, the people in these situations are dealing with a real threat to mortality. Um, it's often a shock. Psychologically, people are not in their usual postures where maybe they could go on the internet and do research and be very logical about this. This is an extremely sort of a personal tragedy. I just think it's so easy for the people conducting research. I mean, some of the, say, the research nurses are very in touch with this, but the further away you are from uh, actual on-the-ground experience with the, the subject or the, the parent, the easier it is to forget about that. Uh, for my law professor listeners, this made me think about the way I have been towards students, where people like me who have taught for many years, you know, you sort of think you've seen it all. <laughs> and students <laughs> come in and they have these very various personal problems and situations and, and so forth. And it's just very easy to not be dismissive, but not appreciate how serious it is to them. 
because we see so many of them. And this is the way it is for researchers, I think. And then, you know, for people like us, when we sit on IRBs or participate in advisory groups, we are even further afield. I mean, they're all, the real people who are affected by these things are ciphers to us if we've never really been on the ground and in the real situation. And in terms of the personal point of view being so important, I really enjoyed reading your chapter with respect to right-to-try experimental drugs because you had such an interesting spin on this issue because on the one hand, there are lots of advocates that are out there that are trying to say, uh, give us a chance to try, and they're telling the stories of desperation. But what you also point out in this chapter is that we're not hearing enough of the opposite side of people that try something and it, it has absolutely no effect or worse than what the status quo or baseline would have been. And could you give our listeners a sense of this quest for balance in terms of trying to both include narrative, patient, participant voices, and also making sure that there's a balanced representation of those voices? What the public reads about with scientific breakthroughs and miracle drugs and so forth, they, they read about the success stories, the cases where somebody who was on the verge of death is rescued by this experimental drug. And this perpetuates this idea that, you know, there are all these wonderful experimental drugs out there, but the FDA and uh, insurance companies and so forth are keeping them from us. So the Right to Try movement is this group that says patients who have tried approved therapies and they've not been successful should have the option of trying drugs that are still under study. The FDA does have a very um, active program that allows early access to drugs in uh, phase two and phase three testing. So patients who don't qualify for a trial can get access to drugs. But what the Right to Try group wants is patients to be able to have access to drugs that have only been through phase one testing. Phase one testing is safety testing, usually involves only 20 to 80 people. It's basically to find Find out what dose someone can tolerate without experiencing severe, perhaps life-threatening side effects. They're, they're really, um, in phase one, the methods that are used will not tell you anything about effectiveness. Very little information about this movement wants patients and whose doctors are willing to prescribe those drugs uh, for the patients to get them without any review by the FDA or anything. And to make their case, they tell these stories about people who survived after taking experimental drugs or um, died uh, before they were able to get access to uh, experimental drugs. And my point was that that is the tip of the iceberg, um, the success stories. There are, um, if you look at the numbers, many more people who, who are in trials, you know, in and are exposed to these experimental drugs or they get them through the FDA program as patients and it doesn't do any good and sometimes it even hastens their death or causes terrible painful uh, side effects. So my, I believe that many of all of us are responsive to stories. We love stories and 
they influence our um, views. And I think stories are something that we should be using um, to talk about various issues in research and, and bioethics. But I think we should have representative stories. So we need to have stories out there about the people who don't do well with these drugs so that patients and others are getting a more balanced picture of what, what happens uh, right to try. It's very interesting that there, this was started maybe a couple years ago and many, many states now have laws protecting the right to try, but so far there hasn't been any report of any patient who has received a drug through that mechanism, much less benefited from it. So it was almost a symbolic legislative activity. Susan Wolfe and others have done some great work on the dilemmas faced by researchers during trials, uh, such as dealing with incidental findings. Um, but something that I hadn't realized before I read your book uh, was how some of the research subjects had their own dilemmas that they worked through and in some cases led them to actually break the rules of the trial that they were involved in. And I wonder if you could sort of talk a little bit about what you describe as this covert rule breaking, um, why it happens and what the uh, the takeaways from that are. This was fascinating. The, the, this phenomenon is uh, talked about in the professional research world as non-compliance. So these are people who are in studies and don't follow the rules. For the professional guinea pigs, volunteer for phase one trials, and sometimes they have to stay in a residential unit during the trial. They talk about things uh, like lying about the eligibility criteria, so you're not supposed to be in a trial sooner than 30 days since the last one that you were in, and um, perhaps even longer um, because they want the old stuff cleared out of your system. It can also be risky to be in too many of these things, and so they have to get their history, and they lie about that because they want to get in the trial because they're doing it for the money. Once they're in a trial, they maybe um, don't keep up the diet they're supposed to have. Um, they're supposed to stop treat, uh, taking any medications they're taking for their own health. And uh, in fact, they may keep taking them. Patients in trials also don't necessarily follow the rules. So an interesting study I wrote about was an asthma study. Unbeknownst to the subjects, uh, they were given inhalers uh, that would administer the study drug, and the inhaler could tell the date and time when the medication was released. When the subjects came in for their visits with the, the trial team, they were asked, okay, did you take your medication as you were supposed to? And, and they had to hand over their inhalers. Well, the, the researchers found that about one-third of the subjects had actually dumped a bunch of their medication before they showed up for the appointment. <laughs> 
and they didn't tell the researchers about it. So again, life got in the way for whatever reason they they weren't following the study rules. So this raises problems with the data that are used to decide whether to approve drugs. It also could put the subjects at risk, for example, when people hide some sort of health problem because they want to get into a trial, then they could actually, you know, die or have some sort of bad side effect. And this this has been documented as happening. And also, it raises issues about the ethical behavior of the subject. Do subjects have responsibilities? Well, maybe they do, but how are you going to promote their fulfilling of the responsibilities? One approach is policing. So the idea is, well, let's just figure out more of these monitoring devices. So they're talking about smart pills where it would send a computer notification when a pill is swallowed, that sort of thing. Um, and, and I think those kinds of devices could be ethical if you tell people. For example, those inhalers, if you had just said to the subjects, you know, these inhalers can tell us when you take the medication then they would be on notice about that and they would probably actually have done it more as they, as they were supposed to. Uh, a second approach is intensified guidance where you're sort of monitoring, calling people and reminding people of what they're supposed to be doing. The problem with both of those though is I, I think that they do reinforce this hierarchy sort of saying that researchers are the bosses and subjects are the subservient where we have to, you know, police them. So the third approach is more of a collaborative approach where you would include subjects in planning a study, would also design studies so that any kind of irritating rules are minimized. So thinking about how many of these rules are we just following because that's what we've always done and how many of them are really needed for the science. Again, the sort of going to the theme of the book, let's look at these rule-breaking subjects as hackers. That is, these are people who can tell us about flaws in the system and perhaps help us make it better. In order to sort of close up our conversation and sort of discuss some of the issues that I think you bring forward out of a consideration of literature, Rebecca. I was wondering if you could talk about the research subject as literary subject, uh, the your last chapter, and some of the, the key lessons that you uh, got out of a close reading of some really interesting stories and novels uh, and plays in this area. I think fiction is a way to reach people indirectly and also uh, a very powerful way, uh, a way to raise ethical issues in a non-didactic way, in a way that uh, is perhaps less threatening and more mind-expanding, um, maybe more or more receptive to thinking um, about these questions when it's not someone sort of saying, saying, yes, we should do this, we should do this, and this is why. There are some famous novels where the scientist is the protagonist, but uh, I was interested in the ones where the subject uh, was at least one of the uh, protagonists. There's a novel called The Normals involving a young man who has a big student debt can't, uh, from Harvard, can't figure out what he wants to do with his life. His um, parents are 
aging. He's an only child. His mother has dementia. His father wants his son to help them uh, commit suicide so they can <laughs> deal with this. He has a lot of problems. So he volunteers for a, a phase one drug trial where he's going to be uh, staying at a residential unit away from the debt collector and his parents for several weeks. And he gets in there and it's full of crazy characters and he ends up volunteering for an, a secret study that one of the doctor scientists is conducting that he hasn't been able to get the uh, company to approve something uh, to cryopreserve people in the emergency room while they develop a plan on how to care for them. So it definitely has some connection with real efforts going on in science. Um, and he ends up practically dying, but then they have to settle the case. They give him enough money where he can pay off all of his debts. His mother dies naturally. His father decides he doesn't want to kill himself. And so his research experience helps him grow up and solve, uh, helps him solve his problems. So that's, that's one kind of narrative. Another narrative, uh, I um, start with Frankenstein, which people who haven't read it recently may not uh, realize that substantial part of that book is telling about the experiment from the monster's point of view and it's really all about a scientist who abandons his subject. The monster starts out as um, very vulnerable, almost like a child, and he doesn't know anything about life. Uh, Frankenstein runs off, and so the monster's on his own. He's uh, not very attractive, so people are frightened of him. He has to make his own way, and through the process of being rejected by everyone, he turns into a monster who kills people. So I thought that was fascinating that Mary Shelley had that insight almost 200 years ago when she was about 19. And so some of the modern research stories are, are, have some similar themes and also the theme of Frankenstein, uh, which is that science is, you know, has risks and uh, threatens humanity and we need to be aware of that. And people who do science should be humane and care about what they're doing. It's almost a sort of a science ethics is important uh, book. And that was The Week in Health Law. Uh, a big thank you to Professor Dresser for joining us. It was a privilege to have you on the pod, Rebecca. Thank you. I enjoyed it. We post our show notes at twill.com where you'll find a link to Professor Dresser's book. You can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter and Frank, where will you be? I can be contacted at Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. <laughs>